Alrighty, hello everybody. I'm back, and I'm back under somewhat atypical circumstances. So I'll wait for uh, Richard to arrive before elaborating on that. Hopefully, he pops in momentarily, and I can stop killing time and stop uh, withholding uh, all my live analysis from the NATO summit in Madrid. I admit that it is dwindling substantially at this point, but I've, uh, I'm here. I'm physically in the building. And there is Richard. Hey, Michael. Hey. So, How's Brussels? Uh, I'm not in Brussels. Boy, you're, you're out of the loop. Oh, Madrid. Madrid. Yeah, yeah, Madrid. yeah. I saw that. Madrid, yeah, to Madrid. I'm, uh, I'm literally in the NATO summit venue still. Um, I'm sitting in the gigantic media area. You know, there's. It's always like a contradiction as to of what value it really even is to be at these things because, for the most part, they really wanted to sequester the media. Um, and keep them away as much as possible from the actual goings-on of the summit. Like, they set aside this giant room with, you know, outlets and Wi-Fi and uh, setups for uh, TV spots and all that. Uh But it's not like you could go and mingle freely with the people who were actually participating in the in the summit, like the delegates or the the. So you're basically, um, like you're just like watching it on TV. Basically, you're not. You're not. Well, no, I mean, I, I, it's not exclusively that. It's partly that. Like when the when the main substance of the summit is happening, you can't really go in. But they have they they did occasional immediate availabilities where there would be people who would mosey into this room. So I um briefly spoke to like Senator Gene Shaheen and Senator Tom Tillis who led this congressional uh, CODEL, congressional delegation to Madrid and they had been flying around to uh, Helsinki and Sweden and everything to support the bids of uh, Finland and Sweden in, to get into NATO. Uh, I talked to a member of Congress who I just happened to recognize here. But that's the catch. You have to kind of just walk around and see who you recognize or notice like and you know so i'm sure i missed a bunch of european officials that i just didn't recognize didn't know who they were i mean i happened to yesterday uh talk to the finnish um minister of foreign affairs Uh but only only because i saw him being interviewed by somebody else and so that enabled me to ascertain who he was you ask him um i asked him how does he explain why Finland suddenly needs to dispense with its long-standing policy of neutrality that it maintains for decades all throughout the Cold War and throughout conflicts in the past? And, but now suddenly Ukraine, the Ukraine war is of such paramount importance that it has to dump all that aside. And he gave an answer about how, you know, the Ukraine war fundamentally upended the uh, security architecture of Europe or whatever. But the most interesting thing was that he said that I asked him pretty much the same question that Rand Paul asked him when he was in D.C. recently. Uh Um, So uh, Rand Paul and I, I guess, are of two minds. Or of of one mind. Yeah, probably the only one in the the Senate uh, who said he was close, close to thinking the way you're thinking about these things. Yeah, Rand Paul temporarily blocked the admittance of Montenegro into NATO in 2017, which most people don't even know what Montenegro is, but it's a Mm. tiny country that in 2017, under under Trump, had its uh, NATO admission ratified. And uh, Rand Paul blocked that by putting a hold on it for... um, a week or so, and McCain on the floor of the Senate accused Rand Paul of working for Putin. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember this, yeah. Yeah. Um, Can you imagine if McCain was alive right now, how unbearable it would be? 
Yeah, he'd be uh, he'd probably be anointed king of NATO. Like he would have <laughs> the summit would have been entirely in his honor. He would have been beaten in some Republican primary, and then they would have yeah they would have sent him to NATO as the American head of NATO. <laughs> they would have sent him yeah, to yeah. So anyway, it's 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 pretty interesting. You know, I, I noticed that so. Nothing concrete came by this, right? There was no decision, the policy they're going to change, right? I didn't see anything like that. Well, I mean, there are some concrete things. I mean, they formally endorsed the oh, yeah, Finland mission to Finland and Sweden. Right. Sweden. Uh-huh. They uh, capitulated to Turkey, so they Turkey dropped its objection and, you know, allowed for NATO as an institution to endorse the... The admittance of those two countries obviously has to now be approved by every country, every country's individual parliament or Congress, mm-hmm. which will take a while because um, it's an amendment to like a, in the U.S. It's an amendment to the, the North Atlantic Treaty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, but, but it was also significant that for the first time they singled out China in in their. Yeah summit declarations i mean these summit declarations are actually pretty consequential it's like a it's a joint statement on behalf of the entire membership as to the priorities of the alliance and in 2010 which is the last time they they issued like a comprehensive strategy decree russia was listed as a strategic partner Uh um you know that was back when uh Medvedev was in power, and they had just gotten, you know, done the New Start Treaty and everything. So there was a quote thaw, I guess you would say, in relations at that point. Um, and so the, you know, the wording is much more obviously aggressive against Russia, but probably more ultimately consequential just in terms of the newness of this particular strategy document is that they. You know, devoted paragraphs to China. I don't know if you, did yeah. you happen to read it. Yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, basically says that China is basically an aggressive actor. It wants to, uh, here, I'll pull it, pull it up. Yeah, the uh, deepening. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, subverting a, the rules based international order. Right, right. right. Yeah, deal. yeah, so it's basically like, yeah, it's not a, it's not a, you know, it's not a um, sort of hesitant or reticent, you know, like concern with China. It's China is a bad actor. Um, yeah. in the world and you know we're here to do something about it. It's interesting they're doing it now like for the first time ever. I mean I think the point I think they're try I think this is probably something they've always wanted. I think that like NATO can pretty much do what it wants now. Um, I don't think people are paying much attention. It seems like they're sneaking this sort of China thing uh, in there. You know the deepening strategic partnership between the People's Republic of China yeah, and the I was Russian just gonna Federation mention that. and they're mutually enforcing to undercut the rules based international right counter our values. Like it's just such a collection of bs like yeah these these <laughs> words don't mean any you know they don't mean anything uh, but, but they're telling you like their mood their attitudes toward china the idea that china and russia you know are, are friends somehow just you know can justify uh you know in the face of the russian threat also being against china but it doesn't uh you know we says we're you know engagement with the prc it doesn't say anything like we're going to support taiwan or anything like that no right no it doesn't get into those specifics but i think just the mere mention of china in these highly like accusatory terms is pretty significant and it's probably in part a reflection of the fact that for the first time they invited the leaders of japan uh, south korea australia and new zealand to the nato summit as like kind of full-fledged partners so they're obviously not members but they're the next level below and that's a just a wild expansion of the remit of NATO. So, the, and they're talking about how now we need to sort of we need, they need to f- uh, focus more on the Indo-Pacific. So, on the one hand, they're 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 denouncing China for its you know aggress- aggressive posture, and on the other, saying, "Oh, by the way, we're bringing our atli- alliance that was supposed to be based in the North Atlantic into China's backyard." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this uh, this is unusually aggressive stuff, right? You said Finland. I mean, the fact that, you know, this was never, like, a thing during uh, the Cold uh, War. It's like right now, Russia. The fact that Finland was never uh, part of NATO, and then it's like, okay, now, this you know, this moment, it's the greatest threat, you know, that Finland has ever faced, I guess. Uh, and then, yeah, the East Asia stuff seems, it seems pretty significant. I mean, and it seems like, Japan, I mean, it doesn't, I don't think like most of these, like Australia, New Zealand, and Japan in particular, 
not so much South Korea or South Korea, although maybe it would change with the new uh, uh, the new conservative government. But uh, yeah, I mean, they seem more on board with this stuff. Um, and like we're gonna, you know, we're gonna be sleepwalking into this, just like we're sleepwalking. Like nobody was thinking about Montenegro, nobody was thinking about, uh, uh, you know, all these countries in Eastern Europe, uh, Estonia. But now it's like, you know, now it's like we came to Russia's borders. Nobody was thinking about that relationship between uh, uh, the U.S. and Ukraine, and you know, they were thinking less about it. And then it became like, okay, we're right on Russia's doorstep and we're fighting them. And it looks like Russian aggression because nobody's been paying attention up to this point. It's the same. It looks like something similar is happening with with china it seems like they're taking the opportunity to get you know closer and closer um and then if something happens it's going to be it's going to be the same story yeah i mean this is like a doctrinal announcement to china that they're in their crosshairs um so i mean how do you think china would interpret being singled out and condemned them in this way by nato well it would confirm all their suspicions about NATO. I mean, one thing that you hear pretty consistently from Chinese diplomats, and I think um, uh, Xi himself articulates this on occasion, is basically they are against the idea of nations coming together into these unchallengeable, into these um, closed blocks. Um, and NATO is one example of that. And China has said that it is leery of the U.S. spearheading the composition of another block in uh, the Pacific region. So whether that's by whether that's going to be done directly by way of NATO or through, you know, a constellation of other organizations and affiliations, um, it seems to be happening. Yeah, and 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 yeah, it's just, you know the uh, the head of, the new head of the British Army who warned that the the British army needs to be prepared to fight a ground war in Europe, um, elaborated on his views in a speech this week to a a think tank in London and said uh, one of the big reasons why the UK needs to increase its military spending and fortify its army and get into a war posture in Europe is because it needs to free up the US to devote more resources to potentially waging war in the Pacific theater. I mean, so they really are sketching out a framework for, I don't mean, I don't want to get histrionic, but they really are kind of sketching out a framework for how a hypothetical, you know, third genuinely global uh, world war could potentially pan out, especially in this insistence on kind of um, officially binding together uh, Russia and China as, as they did, meaning NATO did in the strategy document. Yeah, and it's bizarre because the original, uh, you know, the original way NATO came together was there was an explicit, you know, there was a, at least a clear threat from the Soviet Union what what it was doing, um, that it would, you know, go, you know, take over, basically uh, overrun Western Europe. And this this time, I mean, there's not even, you know, like China's going to invade Japan. I mean, that's not like what everyone thinks. China's going to invade South Korea. I don't, you know, nobody thinks that. Maybe China invades Taiwan, but that's not even, you know, they're, they're not going to bring Taiwan into this thing. That would be even more uh, provocative. Uh, so it's like, you have this thing where China, like, you know, thinks it's a maternal matter. And then you bring in, like, you try to start bringing in these countries that are around China. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then <laughs> because you just hope something happens. But it's not like, you know, it's like, it, it, there's not a there's not a actual realistic pro- pro- you know, possibility of China I think and even they, they they don't even say like you know that's going to happen in the, in the thing. It's like they're you know they're debt you know they're uh, increase they're trying to get like uh, control over uh, uh, minerals and like you know the, these uh, you know important resources and uh, trying to make countries dependent on it. Like and if even that's true, that's like not what NATO is for, right? That's like a foreign you know that's like a you know important industries and protecting them. That's you know protecting access to resources. That's like domestic policy. So it's it's a very strange thing. I mean, it's a um, it's a it's a uh, sort of bureaucracy in search of a mission. Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier this morning. I was on the uh, BBC World Service, and so we're sort of surprised to get the invitation because they knew what my general take was going to be. Um, in part because I spoke to a producer who asked me what my general take would be and to elaborate on it, um, and yet extended the invitation nevertheless um so you know maybe there's a bit more of a 
variation and acceptable views that are allowed on some of these mainstream precincts now, or at least the, at least the BBC. Um, and one thing I mentioned was that uh, yesterday I went to a press conference or press briefing that was held by the uh, foreign minister of Canada. And the question I put to her is the question that I had wanted to put to a lot of different people if I had better access to them. I was going to ask uh, Boris Johnson this today. I was sitting right in front of him, but it was uh, skipped over for all of his uh, mates in the traveling British press corps because he had the, they have a pre-selected group of people that they'll call on at these faux uh, press conferences. But at the, the one with the Canadian minister, it was, it was open. Um, and so I asked is her... Freeland, Freeland still the minister? No. Freeland is the... Is the uh, she's the treasury minister, or like the economic minister, isn't she? Uh, um, I thought Freeland was some... Was she a foreign minister at one point? Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't... I forget what her exact title... Isn't she... A, I thought she's the deputy prime minister, actually, isn't she? Uh, she is a serving as... Uh, a deputy prime minister, you're right, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, so this uh, was um she, she was before she was minister of intergovernmental Af- minister she was minister of foreign affairs until 2019. Okay. This was uh Melanie Jolie, minister of foreign affairs. Uh-huh. For Canada. <laughs> it's funny cuz you could basically tell how important a country it is by how easy it is to get into their press conference and ask a question. <laughs> so Canada Canada's not that important. Um Anyway, I got in and I, I put the I posed the question, you know, how can it really be said any longer that NATO is a purely defensive alliance? Because that's repeated like a mantra by everyone, from the Secretary General on down. Um, whenever they're trying to rebut a criticism of NATO by Russia or whomever, they'll say, "Look, of course, don't you know NATO is just a strictly defensive alliance? You know, it's like a it's like a creed." Uh, and I said, okay, but how could that still be the case if the whole triumph of this particular summit is supposedly that NATO is broadening its focus and expanding into the Indo-Pacific to counter what it calls the you know, maliciousness of China? Because like, China is not in the North Atlantic, <laughs> Yeah, so China that, is, China's not threatening. I mean, any, they're bringing countries in, particularly. I mean, it's not like China's going to invade any country currently in NATO. Yeah, it's completely, it's a completely arbitrary sort of uh, expansion of the mission. Yeah. So, what did she say? And she said, "Well, you know, we're all in favor of this mandate, and particularly in Canada, because in Canada, you know, where we have a Pacific coastline, <laughs> so." Therefore, we need to be extra yeah. cautious so we, about China. That was yeah, her answer. So does so America, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We also have a Pacific coastline. Yeah, that, that's scary, yeah. So like 8,000 miles away or whatever it is, they're saying that the fact that, you know, British Columbia is on the Pacific Ocean, that's their justification. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, so it's just, it's always just a pack of cliches, really, when you put questions like this to people. Um, but anyway, I mentioned that on the BBC and it seemed to be this morning, it seemed to be well received, which I, I found surprising. Um, I would have thought that they would be holding to a stricter line around, you know, the sacrosanct virtue of NATO, but I got that in. And, uh, what else? Okay. Just another funny anecdote. Um, I don't even know if you call it a funny anecdote, really, but it's something that happened, which is that this afternoon they had a whole bunch of, and this is where there actually is potential value of being here in person, if you can get questions in. Um, They had press availabilities for pretty much all the national leaders. Um, So I had to pick between, you know, Canada, Germany, France, the UK for like the first round. Uh-huh. At around noon today, and I picked the UK just because I figured, you know what, I speak the language, and I'm generally familiar with Boris Johnson, but um, but I couldn't. But he skipped, you know, he 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 had a pre-selected list of journalists to call on, so it wasn't like a 
it, there's almost no point of it being a press conference because it's already predetermined who's going to be chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was the same with Biden. Biden actually took even fewer questions uh, right after that. It was right in the front row. Um, so Biden, you know, called on just a handful of journalists. It was like, you know, New York Times, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, NBC, that's it. And then the final uh, press conference of the day <laughs> that uh, was uh, Erdogan. Mm-hmm. And so I stuck around and Erdogan gave just a freewheeling, totally unrestricted press conference called on everyone did not have a pre-existing list anybody could ask exactly what they want uh-huh. he got challenged a bunch on you know his attitudes toward the kurds and what he's demanding of yeah. uh, sweden and finland in terms of uh repatriating these alleged terrorists I mean, he got some pretty tough questions there was there was a woman who was challenging him for turkey being ranked low on the freedom house index <laughs> and he was like oh maybe freedom house needs to Examine itself, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but uh, but you know I I was even able to ask him a question which was just you know bizarre, uh, and we ended up having an exchange because he had, in his opening remarks he went out of his way to stress his desire to broker a ceasefire because if you remember at, you know in the early phase of the Ukraine war Turkey was the mediator. Um, and they were holding talks in Ankara with these uh, you know, diplomats from Ukraine and Russia. That's that's been broken off for you know like a month, month and a half now. But um, but Erdogan re- reiterated that and said that there might has to be a diplomatic solution as quickly as possible. And my, my question to him was, "You appear to be, sir. You appear to be the only leader in NATO." Who's even talking about any kind of diplomatic approach any any longer? Um, whereas, you know, we just got done with the Biden press conference and he was declaring that the U.S. is going to be sending new missile systems now, uh, even longer range missiles and um, offensive weapons, whatever that means exactly. That's what the term Biden used. You know, and, and Boris Johnson has the same, maybe even more uh, assertive approach. So I, I said, you know, so how do you explain that? And do you think that, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. and some others who are the, on the more bellicose side of this discussion are unduly prolonging the war? And uh, I, I, I didn't, wasn't able to like transcribe it or really record the audio. Hopefully I can find it because I was listening in a translation device. Um, and Basically, he, was, he responded by touting his own approach over that of other countries because he s- said, the proof is in the eating. And then he asked me a question and said, do I know that phrase? Is there an English <laughs> equivalent of that phrase? So I had to reply to him. You know, and This is like in a giant room of somehow I'm in, like, in, in dialogue with Erdogan. Uh-huh. Um, and I said, oh, I think it's the proof is in the pudding. And everyone laughed. And then he got it and... So basically, he was saying that the proof is in the pudding because they they've advanced a better foreign policy approach than others. Although obviously, he went out of his way to be laudatory of Biden and Johnson and everyone else because he's that's know, interesting. So yeah. undemocratic, auto, autocratic Erdogan was the only leader who would take real questions. Yeah, I mean the only uh, I mean the only leader that I anyway experienced. I'm not sure. Like I walked into the Polish uh, president's press conference yesterday and you know i couldn't even do anything because it was entirely in polish and there was no translation available but that was accessible um i'm not sure about the others i would have liked to have gone to macron's this afternoon but at least compared to johnson and biden it was like polar opposite in terms of the accessibility and the lack of just like a stage managed quality but yeah, Erdogan is like this, you know, foremost authoritarian, and I'm not even doubting any of that necessarily. I don't have enough familiarity with like the inner workings of Turkey, frankly, to comment intelligently. But it's just funny, given that reputation. Anyway, he he was far more liberal in his attitude toward the press, at least here, than uh, than Bi- than Biden and Johnson. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Yeah, this stuff I've been about who's a 
who's democracy and who's not democracy tends to be, uh, you know, nonsense. I mean, they have a, they have a, there's just another New Yorker profile of uh, Orban. I mean, they write like, you know, there's one of these like big profiles like every month on Orban. And it never seems that serious. I mean, the Erdogan thing, you know, there are claims. I like you. I don't have enough familiarity with the internal politics of Turkey. I mean, they faced, they did face a coup that might have been, you know, American supported. Um, there's at least that possibility. Well, yeah, and that's when they cracked. That's when the, it's said that they began really cracking down hard post 2016. Yeah, e- exactly. So yeah, we don't know that we don't know this stuff. But yeah, it sounds like. I mean, it sounds like it was just all. I mean, it sounds. I mean, this, it sounds. You know, sounds sort of honorable what Erdogan did. So the polls, they didn't even pr- uh, provide a translator, but the Turks did. That's well, the thing is, there was only. I mean, unless I screwed up and missed something. There was only a translation available in like the main press conference room because they were handy. You could pick up a device like a, you, it's like a headphones and they have somebody there live translating in four different languages. Uh-huh. Whereas yesterday, at least I think, you know, the poll, it's funny, like nobody gives you guidance on anything. It's just like you're thrown in here. You have to figure everything out on your own almost. It's kind of uh-huh. funny. Um, but uh, I, when I went to the Polish uh, uh, press conference, they didn't have any of the translation devices available. So it was like useless for me to to be there. I, I do think the Polish president speaks a little bit of English, but I didn't want to like just start, bl- you know, blurting out English out of nowhere, <laughs> you know, because it was all the Polish press corps. Yeah. Um. So, but yeah, I, I do think, um, I, and actually, it's a funny indication of the primacy of the U.S. because the only press conference or like availability for a national leader that required. And a, a special procedure in order to access was Biden's. Like they, they had an announcement this morning that in order to get into the U.S. press conference, you had to go and line up at some other place and get a special uh, card, and then go line up and wait someplace else in order to get in. Whereas um, every other every other uh, leader, including you know Boris Johnson, you know you could I mean, anybody could just walk in. Um, and, you know, there wasn't any special security measures, but, you know, with, with Biden, they, you know, the Secret Service had to do its all, whole separate uh, sweep and everything else, but it was only the U.S., right? Um, how, much, and, uh, how much security is there to get into the thing in the start? Um, well, I mean, the first layer of security is you have to get approved for a press credential. I, I sort of doubted that I was going to get approved at all. Because I got uh, denied at the last NATO summit, uh, uh-huh. which which wasn't Brussels, but it was an emergency summit. Um, but I, I think here, like they they just have such a giant room, and like they're making a point to inv- invite tons and tons of media from everywhere, so that there was uh, less of a rationale probably to not let me in this time. Uh-huh. Um, to the, but you know, whatever process they go through to decide whether to approve or deny you, that's like the first layer of security. Um, and then you have to go pick up your credential at a, like a, it's a school in Madrid. It's like a high school for some reason in Madrid. And, you know, you're dealing with Spanish national police to get the actual physical credential. And then the only way to actually access the summit venue is you have to take a shuttle bus, you know, that the police escort uh-huh. from this location where you pick up your credential to like this convention type center. Um, and at that point, once you walk in, it's just sort of like a standard airport security. It's nothing, nothing wild. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are uh, Policia Nacional all over with dogs, and yeah, you know, who knows who knows who uh, what other kind of spooks and security types are here. Yeah, I even saw the, um, you know, the uh, Kalenko. I forget his name. Is that his name? The mayor of Kiev, Kiev Klitschko. Klitschko, yeah, he, the, he was there. The twin brothers were walking around. They were like the biggest celebrities. Everyone was running <laughs> up to them to take photos with them. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's not it's it's not it's not like absurd security. The security at um, the security at political conventions in the U.S. I think was even has been was even crazier than these than this. Like in, when I've been to. Uh, like you know, the Democratic National Convention or the Republican National Convention, they like shut down the whole city and they have these militarized zones and 
it's like go through a whole winding path. I mean, it's it's maybe comparable to that, uh, but it's not as crazy as you might think it would be given, you know, every world leader is here. I mean, <laughs> every world leader in NATO plus Australia, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand was here, plus, you know, secretaries of state, defense, you know, Blinken was here, Austin, um, senators, congressmen, and then, you know, God knows who else from these other countries. So yeah, I, it, it was it was slightly less severe than I would have expected uh, given the um, the people in attendance. And actually, at one point, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but uh, yesterday morning-ish, I was just kind of wandering around because I was getting antsy. Because a lot of journalists just come here and seem to just sit in the press room the entire time. Like Natasha Bernard, CNN, who's like horrible. She was here. And all I ever saw, I mean, I don't know. But I, I saw her just constantly. All she seemed to do was sit at this, this special CNN table that, of course, they mocked up for CNN. And then go and do her hits on, on TV. And all the hits were, were just her like giving a summary of what's happening at the conference. It was like she could have just stayed home. Based on what I saw, anyway. Um, but anyway, so I was wandering around yesterday, and I went through what looked like a publicly available, like, uh, hallway. And I ended up in a secure section of the summit <laughs> that, you know, I technically wasn't allowed to be at. I didn't even really know for sure that I wasn't allowed to be at, but I was just moseying around. And next thing I know, I walk right past this, like, the Ursula lady who's the head of the European Commission. Uh-huh. All right. Um, she looks like Cruella de Vil. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and like I'm sort of in the main NATO area. I didn't see anybody. Nobody. St- I didn't recognize anybody other than that lady. But you know, I was sort of just uh, mingling with you know the British Foreign Office and stuff. And it's, eventually, like, a police officer came up and noticed that I had like the wrong lanyard to be in that zone and had me go out. But it was like not a major to do or anything. But anyway, like that. But that. It's sort of bizarre that I was even able to get <laughs> that far. Um, so yeah, it's just uh, it's 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 odd to me that the security was doesn't wasn't as stringent as it as it might have been, or I would have probably assumed that it would have been. <laughs> and COVID is over, I suppose. There's no COVID protocols at all. I saw COVID is I saw, over. There's no I saw pro- one person wearing a mask on TV. One one pro- person in the press. They would have all been or six months. The ago, mask all. wearing is all voluntary. You, ha- you do have to w- you have to wear a mask on the shuttle bus. So the police <laughs> demand that you wear a mask on the shuttle bus. But other than that, because I guess you know it's still required on public transportation here. Um, but other than that, no, it's not required. You know, there was um, when I was trying to interview uh, Senator Shaheen yesterday. Um, one of her aides, like one of these paranoid congressional staffers or Senate staffers that she brought, she was fully masked up. And um, she started like, she was trying to, to usher the senators away from me because, you know, they had, they were quote busy, so they couldn't do like a two minute, they couldn't like finish a two minute interview. Um, and it seemed like, it was like this woman, maybe she was, mid thirties or something. And she just, she was, she, her, she had a giant mask on. She seemed like she was hyperventilating. Uh-huh. She like, um, like she was just out of her mind. It was crazy, but you know, n- no, most people are not masked here. Um, did she know who you were or she was just, she just, naturally I don't know. Like I, that? I, I, she seemed naturally like that. Maybe she knew who I was. She, she, she said, you know, you've been very persistent. And I said, Oh yeah, I apologize for persistently trying to, conduct an interview with two senators inside a media zone. Um, uh, I, I will say that the, my, the contingent of uh, Asian, East Asian uh, reporters who are here, they're all masked up. <laughs> but other than that... The East no. Asians are all masked That's crazy. You know, East Asians here in California are also masked up. Asians love masks. I mean, it's really, it's really unlike anything. I thought you think liberals love masks. No, Asians love masks way more than And I technically, I had to get a COVID test in order to fly into Spain still. I mean, that was the most ridiculous part, actually, because it was was stupid, expensive to get at the airport. Um, You still have to fill out this, like, passenger locator type form. I mean, it's not that big of a deal, ultimately, but it's just a totally useless obstacle that 
Spain still has in place. Most other countries, I think, probably have gotten have gotten rid of that at this point. Like I know the UK abolished it last time I was there. Um, the, even the US has gotten rid of it, but for whatever reason, Spain, they're uh, yeah, they still require that I mean, for entry. Europe, I, I would have thought if you asked me before the pandemic, Northern Europe or Southern Europe would be stricter. The, the stereotype of Northern yeah, Europe, Southern Europe, like yeah, Southern uh, Europe, yeah, yeah, Southern Europe is is worse somehow. I mean, it's it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty amazing. I don't know about Spain, but I know Portugal, they released at some point like the permanent living with COVID plan. And it was basically like masks forever. Um, you know, it was like based on the numbers. So like, you know, seasonally, they would be doing masks forever. I don't know if they stuck with that. But yeah, Southern yeah. Europe, it's really bad on this stuff. And Spain and, and Portugal uh, off and on have required masks everywhere in public, including outside. Like uh, during Omicron last winter yeah um spain reinstated an outdoor mask mandate um i remember i read a funny article in the new york times it was last summer about you know they had temporarily reopened some travel back and forth between the uk and portugal because a lot of people from a lot of british people go to portugal on on holiday and it was causing all kinds of problems because in the uk you know there was, the lockdowns were strict in some ways but they'd never really had an outdoor mask requirement um, it just wasn't known as a thing that was required. And so when these British tourists would go to Portugal, they'd be in like the blazing heat in these uh, uh-huh. tourist areas and they would have like police, you know, henpecking them to, to wear their masks. It was causing all Good kinds God. of problems outside. Yeah. What a mu- nightmare. What a, what's wrong with these places? I mean, this, what a nightmare. Thank yeah, God. well, I mean, nobody. And it's like I, a, and it's for the fact that it's enforced too by like the law. Like, I think if a police officer saw me with a mask mandate in the U, like they were not wearing a mask where there was a mask mandate, I don't think they would say anything. The uh, most should have that happen before. Yeah, um, but you know, they're out, they're out there and and you know the Iberian Peninsula enforcing the mask mandate in the blazing sun on tourists. I mean, that's that's crazy. As of last summer, I doubt they're doing it now. I don't know, but um, the, the the most interesting and surprising observation that I've made along these lines was when I went to Poland in March, you know, to cover Ukraine war stuff. Um, by the way, there's like a group of trolls, including journalists who are still obsessed with the fact that I went to Poland and are really angry about it for some reason. Like there's just, there's this journalist who keeps berating me over, you know, I was a coward because I didn't go into Lviv and, uh, you know, recite the, Ukrainian Ministry of Defense's uh, talking points. Oh, by the way, I, I ran into some uh, Ukrainian, uh, a member, uh, a guy who works for the Ukrainian embassy. And, you know, I, I wouldn't have recognized the guy. I just happened to notice him. And I said, oh, can we, can I do an interview? And he said, uh, no, there's a very, very strict procedure to do an interview with any of us. You have to go through, like, jump through 10 hoops and talk to the top guy. So, I mean, this, he's, this guy's walking, I mean, this is in a media room. So this is a Ukrainian embassy staffer just kind of walking around and uh, could not even do like a simple, you know, five minute interview, according to him. I had to like, you know, send an email to some account and then wait 10 days. Um, But anyway, on the COVID thing, the most surprising finding to me was when I went to Poland and um, it was surprisingly strict on COVID still, even in March. Um, like you had to get a test to get, to get in. Um, and you know, when I was first in Warsaw, I went like the first day I was walking around, I would like duck into a shop and the shopkeeper would say, please put, please wear your mask. And of course I didn't understand what she was saying at first, but I learned that phrase in Polish. Um, and so Poland has a mask mandate. No, I don't think it was mandated at that point, but it had been for a while. But like, uh, it, it, it was voluntarily enforced by a, a surprisingly large segment of the population. And when I went to like this mall, it was like a glistening Amer- like American style mall almost, because I had to I, I lost my computer charger, so I had to go and like find a new computer charger. And I would say fifty, sixty percent of the people inside the mall in March were voluntarily wearing masks in Poland. Uh-huh. So Which I found says, surprising. So this, I would have expected so, in Eastern Europe it would have been different. So I googled and it looks like they, they say that Poland scraps the most mandates in the end of March, March 24. Uh, so maybe they were, maybe okay. they did have a mandate at the time? Yeah, maybe they did have it at that time, now that I think about it, yeah. Uh, yeah I, so th- I thought they had scrapped 50%. it. A mask yeah, mandate for what, indoors? What, what? Uh, yeah, all indoors, yeah. 
Oh, okay. Uh, Never mind then. It, it's well, I guess it's well it, it, less requirement for all, you know, in confined spaces except for healthcare facilities and remove quarantine for travelers and roommates of infected people. So that's that's that, and as of March twenty eighth. Oh, okay. So I guess it was in effect then. Well, I guess I found it surprising that it would have been in effect that that late in uh, <laughs> in Poland. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but uh, no, nothing too crazy in Spain other than what I've outlined on that front. Um, and what else? Yeah, I I, uh, I posed a question to the Latvian defense minister, <laughs> who. Um, you know, it, it's it's just interesting. An observation that I've come to is that in order to make the effort to come to an event like this, you have to travel internationally. If you're a journalist, chances are the journalists who come here are going to have like a baseline acceptance or even appreciation or reverence for NATO. So they're almost uniformly not going to be the type of journalist that's inclined to really ask any questions that are probing or that kind of like doubts with the premises of NATO, right? So every question that I I heard one slightly confrontational question that was, that was actually pretty good um, where the secretary general was asked uh, yesterday if this new strategy decree like harkens a new cold cold war and of course he denied that and repeated the oh it's only a defensive alliance cliche um but other than that one example i didn't hear any questions really that were adversarial or whatever most of the questions seem to be you know why aren't we doing more or can you just like give some more details about this new plan or something right um so yeah it's just because uh, the journalists here are kind of part of the wider professional class that descends on these summits because they're, they're like giant networking experiences, right? I think one reason why NATO persists and maybe is is even, you know, even growing is because it's this, it has this whole professional network revolving around it for people, for people to kind of make connections professionally. Um, And so that's the type of person who's going to be at an event like, like this and they're all going to be like in the nato bubble in a sense um like you're like in other words there's not a whole lot of you wouldn't expect a whole lot of critics to come to an event like this um which is why i thought it would be interesting for me to come (laughs) um so uh yeah it's at the 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 i went to um there's a press availability with the canadian defense minister and the Latvian defense minister, because apparently Canada and Latvia were coming out with a glorious new kind of bilateral military arrangement where Canada would be sending a certain amount of troops to Latvia. And, uh, you know, they were forging this remarkable new arrangement. And, um, you know, no, no real, no, no questions. At, uh, I mean, the Canadian, for what I saw, the Canadian press is horrible in terms of their docility. Um, no, but I, I, I asked this question basically to, to, to the Latvian defense minister or so, because he, he had called for maximum uh, support for Ukraine for the foreseeable future. You know, not, not surprising for him to say that from the Baltics or whatever. Uh, but my question was, okay, given that the maximum support you're calling for is going to come primarily from the U.S., what do you say to the average American who sees that the U.S. Congress just allocated $40 billion in May for Ukraine, and now they're being told that's not enough? Are Americans now to believe that they're just on the hook for whatever Ukraine says it wants until the end of time? Um and so you know, he then went on a whole spiel about how you know Ukrainians are fighting for us, and he said, "Oh, by the way, do you think the United States is going to be at peace if or if uh, Ukraine doesn't prevail?" Uh-huh. Uh, basically, saying that you, the U.S. risks being attacked if it doesn't do all it possibly can now to ensure the victory of of Ukraine, and I doubt. 
this Latvian minister has been asked a question that is even like slightly critical this entire you know the past couple months. So maybe it came as a shock. Um, yeah. Same with the the uh, the Finnish minister. I mean, everybody is just to- in total unanimity on this thing. Um, even though like we're kind of setting the stage for what could be a third world war. Um, so yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, the media is just horrible, and the, and the, including the Americans. I mean, they're all such dopes. There's some political, I'm trying to keep my voice down in case any of them are around, but like there's political people, Reuters. Yeah. It's just like, they, they don't, they, they, they don't, they don't, they're supporters of American foreign policy. I mean, it's just like, it's like partisan media, but usually with partisan media, there's like a, a, a you know, conservative and a liberal side. This is not like a conservative or liberal thing. I mean, this is just basically everyone who covers foreign policy has the same views on this stuff. There's not even a, um, like a, within liberalism, there's not even a, like a, uh, like a you know, AOC wing versus like a Biden moderate wing. There's not even that. I mean, the, you know, as far as like questioning, uh, you know, questioning American foreign policy, NATO, international alliances in particular. I mean, yeah, I mean, what else gets, you know, 90, 99 votes in the Senate, right, besides NATO expansion? I mean, what else is like that? So there's just such a elite, you know, unanimity here. It's it's not surprising. It's not like they have to keep out, like, I don't know, do, do people like the gray zone? Do they, like, try to get uh, passes for these things? I don't know. And by the way, if any callers want to uh, chime in, please join the queue. Um I don't know if any. I, I doubt. Um, I doubt the Grey Zone tried to get into this. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I frankly thought it was a bit of a long shot for me to even. I, I think I might have even talked about it with you at some point, maybe a month or so ago. Yeah, I was trying to get into get the Madrid. Yeah, I didn't think I would get in. I thought, you know, maybe they had, you know, looked me up and had a dossier on me from the last time, and you know, wouldn't accept me. So I think a lot of people who are more of a critical bent probably would just assume that they weren't. And they allowed to get in. And also, you know, if you don't have a media organization sponsoring you, it's a kind of a expense. Thankfully, I have enough revenue coming in from my various sources that it's what practical. It, what, does it what does it cost? What do you have to do? Well, I just mean like the flight and lodging and that. Kind oh of yeah, thing. flight and lodging. They don't make you pay. There's not a fee. No, no, you don't. There's no. There's no fee to get into the actual summit. But I'm saying, you know, it's uh-huh. a to to unless you're a local, <laughs> you know, in Spain, uh-huh. it's uh it's kind of an expense, and. um I mean, how many how many media organizations in the U.S. are going to sponsor somebody to come do a critical article or you know, critical coverage of, of the NATO summit? I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, and then you know, it's so it's either it's either like the White House pool who travel around with Biden, and if you're in the White House, I don't know if you know what the White House pool is, but it's kind of it's this. Uh, self-selected small group of journalists that are chosen to like fly around with with Biden, or you know they'll fly around the Secretary of State, Defense, and those guys can't rock the boat at all because they need to be able to maintain their ability to be members of this pool. Um, so if like you're a Bloomberg reporter and you're in the White House pool, you're not going to ask a question that could potentially jeopardize your standing in that pool because that could make you face professional repercussions because Bloomberg wants you to be in this exclusive little milieu. Um, so yeah, a bunch of factors kind of make it so that it's almost, it's extremely unlikely that there's going to be anyone of a slightly skeptical band. It's not even that they're uh, to some degree. Yes. They're part, like they're partisans of us foreign policy, but I also think a lot of them are just sort of dumb. I mean, they they don't even think they don't have the, the awareness to think about anything on a critical level. Um, they just kind of by default accept every premise before them. Um, and yeah. so, so that's like, what being partisan, that's what being partisan or like subscribing to an ideology means, right? You, you are selectively dumb. You don't ask, you know, tough questions about the thing you believe in. Yeah, but I, I almost don't, you I don't get, do you think they're like IQ dumb? Like, you no, IQ, not quite. Just, maybe, maybe lazy is the right way to put it. Um, because I, I don't think like the a political reporter is like a passionate, throbbing pro NATO, pro U.S. foreign policy partisan, right? They're not animated by their unwavering support for U.S. foreign policy. They're just kind of in this whole in a club and just lazily accept the assumptions that undergird 
their membership in the club. And, you know, it just doesn't occur to them to ask anything outside this very narrow range of, of questions. Like, uh, there's one political reporter who did a bunch of, you know, I, I'm kind of annoyed because there was a, some kind of press availability that the Senate delegation did this afternoon, and I couldn't figure out what the hell it was. Nobody from their offices tells me. Um, but they're, they're one, this one political reporter was there. And, like, they're, they're asking them about Roe versus Wade and stuff, which, I, you know, I'm not doubting it's a significant issue, but it just shows that they're kind of tethered to this very myopic, insular conception of what's newsworthy. Like, um, that, that, that's, that's, you know, tied into, you know, just the domestic news cycle. Um and the you know to get to get into Politico and to get to these other sort of mainline publications sort of filters out for people of that mindset. Um, so you know you got to be uh, an anomaly like me, I guess, to just have <laughs> uh, an ability to get to an event like this and not just be in that mind melt. Yeah, I mean, to have an ideology, I mean, doesn't mean that they're you know throbbing, passionate, foaming at the mouth, you know. On every question, it's more like they have a view, and you know these people they see themselves as like objective journalists, right? To them, like it's just a matter of like objective, you know, science or safety, or you know, uh, you know, they'll take like Jen Stoltenberg, you know, that NATO guy. They'll yeah. take, you know, they'll take his, they'll take his word, like it's you know a doctor explaining uh, some kind of disease or something, right? I mean, it's like it's like Fauci thing. So it's it's a it's laziness and maybe like you could call it stupidity, but it's also like ideological. If you took them to like CPAC, they would turn very critical. They would question the press. Yeah, that's true. Every question. Um, they would, you know, just, you know, not take anything f- uh, face value. They would, you know, ask, ask, for, ask for sources and, you know, see through nonsense. And so, yeah, I mean, it is because of, it is because of how they're ideologically inclined that, that ends the coverage. Yeah. Um, all right, you want to spend like maybe 10 minutes or so on uh, some combination of January 6th and Supreme Court? What, what, what observations have you made about either of those dueling um, uh, th- themes that are yeah. worth, worth commenting on? Yeah, so Dobbs, I mean, is a, is a big deal. I mean, the Roe v. Wade thing is going to have an influence on uh, American culture. I mean, I think that I think most honest people who look at the court, the original Roe decision, I mean, they, they don't think it was a very good decision. Uh, you know, it, it was really wasn't based on anything that didn't even bother uh, saying like which where in the Constitution it, it found the, the right to an abortion. Um, and so this is like, you know, a big deal. And I'm actually so, sort of surprised that the Supreme Court, um, I'm, I'm not surprised after we got the leak, but I, you know, I'm surprised compared to what, you know, what I would have thought six months or a year ago, you know, since it was leaked a few months ago, we knew, we knew this was coming. But why are you, uh, I mean, hold, on, hold on a second. Why are you surprised though? I mean, if you know anything about five of the nine justices because you you never because you never know because there's always there's always like so look at john roberts like this is a guy who people thought was a conservative like when john roberts and alito got both got to the supreme court nobody knew um like they would be you know this different right alito is always with the conservatives roberts always tries to find like a way out yeah Um, i don't know i remember i remember they all they said alito was scalito because he was just a clone of scalia whereas uh John Roberts emphasized that he was just wanting to call, quote, balls and strikes yeah, in his confirmation I mean, I mean, I think there was indication. My, my point being, I wasn't surprised that given the current composition of the, of the court that they would be um, open to overturning All you needed, Roe. But, I mean, it is sort of a shock for four. it to happen. Right, yeah. All you needed was one of them to, you know, take it. So, I, you know, I didn't know, you know enough about, you know, who knows? Like, Kavanaugh, maybe, you know, Kavanaugh is not known as, like, a big fire breather, uh... Gorsuch sometimes does weird stuff. Although Gorsuch was probably safe, so you know you just needed one of them uh, to take a different opinion. So I guess it's, it's not that surprising after, uh, especially after Barrett replaced Ginsburg. Um, but uh, yeah, it would, would have been surprising before that. Maybe not. So maybe you're right. Maybe not that surprising uh, at this point. But then you have the the EPA decision is a pretty big deal too. Did you re- uh, read anything about that? Uh, I saw it came down today. I just kind of read a very brief description. Yeah, so this is basically the liberals' entire climate change agenda because they can't get anything through Congress. You know, they're going to use the EPA to go and uh, you know change sort of the composition of where Americans get their energy. And you know, they apparently kill. You know, the court says you can't do that under the EPA six to three <coughs> decision uh, for this one. Um, 
and so yeah we're getting um yeah so i mean this is this is interesting i mean this is like uh you know has you know affirmative actions coming out next year and i think i was all that was the one i was most interested for in uh, this term and i think the indications are that's going to be thrown out the window um for the harvard uh asian case it, the, you know the question is like not like what's the conservative position it's like do these you know are these people willing to you know uh, take the political heat of like doing a politically unpopular thing. So I think it's clear that they that they uh, that they are um, willing to do that. So yeah, it's an interesting you know development and it changes it changes uh, policy in a real way. Yeah, maybe my favorite aspect of the post Dobbs fallout is that uh, more and more people now are familiar with abortion laws in Europe. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. Uh, you know, like in Spain, I think it's uh, I think it's 14 weeks until uh, you know abortion is banned. But in practice, you know, maybe because like the legacy of I guess Catholicism or something here, like, you can read articles where you know, even it's hard to even get legal abortions in a lot of parts of Spain. Um, so you, it's like a in other words, you could write an article about Spain that would sound like Arkansas. Oh yeah, um, and I think most people in the U.S. probably are not aware of that, and neither were most Europeans um, in terms of, you know, I, I, I did a tweet about how, uh, you know, DeSantis and Youngkin introduced 15-week um, yeah, week laws in, yeah. Yeah, in, uh, in Florida and Virginia that would that'd be more liberal than virtually li- every country in Western Europe. Um, and I just don't think that was really... A, well-known or understood facts. Um, so uh, people come, uh, watching people come to terms with that has been amusing. Yeah, it, ha- it, ha- it has been. And it's, you know, it's so, you know, it's sort of pathetic. I mean, I, I noted that, like, you know, the way that Europeans are so emotionally invested in American abortion laws, like, we don't care. Like, Poland banned abortion, like, all abortions recently. <laughs> recently. Yeah. Um, yeah, I talked to people about it when I was there. Yeah, and this was and this was like the most draconian ban, right? This was like beyond any American state. Like the only abortions oh, yeah. that left in Poland were like you know like the most like the worst like uh, you know case case of the mother or uh, disability for the baby, and like Poland just got rid of you know all of it. Um, and you know Americans don't know. I mean, it was in the New York Times and in the Washington Post, but it's not like it would be like a thing our president would. Well, maybe Biden Biden probably did comment on it, but it wasn't like you know it wasn't like a huge thing many Americans. Uh, uh, think about uh, so yeah, yeah well, it's, well sort of, it's, it's crazy how like American politics are just a way for like these foreigners to like virtue signal about how liberal they are like not even worrying about what the law is in their own country just like sort of America is like the heavyweight division and like they can just you know cheer for the liberals in America because that's like you know that's how they show they're a good person or whatever yeah uh, Poland does have life of the mother exceptions and, and rape slash incest uh, exceptions so there are states now in the U.S. that are more strict than Poland, like Oklahoma, for example, doesn't permit abortion. Oklahoma doesn't have any, any kind of... Uh, well, it has, it has life of the mother, but not rape. Um, Alabama doesn't have a rape exception. Many of these, these states that had their trigger laws go into effect don't have rape exceptions. Utah does, but like, uh, you know, a bunch of these states do not have rape or incest exceptions. It's only life of the mother. So um, they've, they've outdone Poland on that front. <laughs> but um, it's funny because, like, you know, Poland has been touted so joyously since. Uh, yeah, they forgot about the. Poland February support. for its, you know, stalwart support of the U.S. And now the U.S. is building a new base in uh, Poland for it to, to uh, house this, you know, 52nd Airborne. And um, that was one of Biden's announcements at the summit, anyway. And it's just, you know, so. Okay, I mean, so that does that mean we're endorsing the abortion? <laughs> the Biden administration's endorsing the abortion policy of Poland. It seems like nobody even takes that into account because nobody really thinks about it. And yet, these foreign countries are so in tune with the inner workings of the U.S. Like Nicola Sturgeon, who's the um, the first minister of Scotland, said that this is the dar- you know when the decision came down, said that this is the darkest day for women ever or something. She's like, okay, but. Not Scottish women because they're not affected, <laughs> um, and it's just uh, it just sort of it's interesting about the primacy of the U.S. It always manifests in bizarre ways. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is a 
it's like don't these people like usually people care about their own countries like don't like you know it's not like a hot button issue like if abortion was the most important thing in the world then you think they'd be like going crazy to liberalize their own abortion laws but yeah nobody's doing that so it's it's very odd well for, well france is supposedly going to be yeah, liberalizing yeah, and even israel, further and israel 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 one is funny the israel yeah, one is the weirdest yeah, given how much evangelical Christians love love Israel, yeah, and, and you'll see news story of- like like there was a news story like you'll see news stories reporting on these countries' reactions to the Supreme Court decision, and it'll just stay state without like even a hint of uh, bemusement or or uh, or wonder that oh, in response to the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Israel's moving to liberalize its abortion laws. It's like I said, like, what, but hold on a second. What is the connection there? <laughs> Why is any country taking any measures in response to a court decision in the U.S. which has no jurisdiction over them? Like, that's not even noted as a strange dynamic <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah it reminds me of when i was reading some stories on like uh getting rid of standardized tests for like you know school school admission like these elite high schools and it's like after the george floyd killing like standardized tests were like thrown out across the country it's like what what does that have to do with george floyd yeah it's pretty it's pretty funny yep oh uh, and by the way for people looking at the title of this room i survived the nato summit and all i got was this lousy and then there i have a subhead Subheadline saying tote bag. I actually did get a NATO tote bag. They give away NATO tote bags to all accredited media. So that was my um, bribe in order to become a huge fan of NATO. Um, one thing I want to tell you actually was that uh, this is right up your alley, Richard. Um, I caught part this a- part of uh, this afternoon a uh, press conference featuring the Spanish foreign minister and the German foreign minister. I don't know if you're familiar at all with the German foreign minister in, partic- in particular, but she was uh, one of the, she's, you know, pr- uh, the, was the leader of the Green Party. Now she's the foreign minister uh, with the new government that was elected last fall. And uh, she was one of the chief advocates for Germany militarizing after the Ukraine war started. Like, she's always on the more aggressive end of debates in sending yeah, weapons Germany and tanks. Full, Germany's government, yeah, there, there are a lot of, uh, there was a big New York Times story about all the females in their foreign policy establishment that were like coming and supposedly shaking things up. Yeah, yeah, so, so she, but she's shaking up things up in the direction of, you know, getting rid of Germany's entire post-World War II legacy in terms of being yeah, exactly. demilitarized exactly. Yeah. and being extremely That's wary of, they're all yeah, like yeah, and, and, and the, the, uh, the panel that she had today was about uh, gender equity in defense policy <laughs> and how and how that's such a great priority of NATO. So it was her, the Spanish foreign minister, and then NATO has this woman who's like the, you know, the Is representative for Johnson gender equity. Was a woman. Is that where... So no, no this was a Ukraine. separate. This was a separate event. I think he just said that in an interview somewhere. But it is true that NATO, like one of the facets of the ideology, especially because there's so much more women now in oh, these yeah, you know, defense you go to the positions. NATO website, it's it's like one of the yeah. main things. It's like women in NATO. Yeah, it, it's front and center in their propaganda. It's really, it's yeah, it's really, it's not something that's like subtle or back there. It's like if there's like five tabs on the website, women will be one of them. Yeah, but it's just hilarious because like this this woman for this German woman who is, you know, revolutionizing German foreign policy in a hawkish direction. She's the one who wants to emphasize the importance of gender equity in defense policy as though No, they always do. That. It makes That's a difference. It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was going to I was trying to ask a question at that event, but you know, unfortunately I uh got there a little late, but I was going to ask like what the hell does any of this matter? Like, what is, is the is the tanks? Are the and it's funny because like she was the German media didn't even bother asking her about any gender related stuff, which was the ostensible impetus for this event. They all asked her. They all like, badgered her about whether when she's going to finally get around to following through on the commitment to send these uh, Leopold tanks, which are somehow going to be transferred through Spain to Ukraine. Um, so. They had like a thing about how you know gender equity and gender parity is going to revolutionize defense policy, and simultaneously they're 
trying to badger this woman into sending tanks into Ukraine. I mean, it's just such a bizarre dichotomy. So, I, was, I mean, the question I was going to ask her was, um, I mean, do tanks have a gender? I mean, why do we care about this? And, uh, but, no, but I didn't, unfortunately, didn't get the opportunity. Um, what else? I'm trying to think if there's anything else of note that I can report from, from Madrid. Uh, I'll have a, uh, I got a, I, yeah, I got a, I got uh, a yeah, let's, got yeah, a, let's, let, let's wrap, let's wrap up with, we're at an unusual time cause I'm six hours ahead of where I, when I usually am. So. Thanks everybody for uh, for tuning in. I will uh, I'll have hopefully an article or a post out um, tomorrow, most likely on uh, NATO stuff. So keep an eye out for that if you're curious, and uh, we will reconvene soon. All right, All right. bye everybody. See you, Michael. Bye.